So maybe you heard the story about the Christian couple who was getting married and they wanted a wedding cake. They went to the baker in town and they said, we'd like you to put a biblical reference on our wedding cake. Baker said, that's fine. And the couple said, we'd like you to put 1 John 4, 18. Not the verse, just the reference. 1 John 4, 18. The verse happens to say, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. It's a great verse for a wedding. The baker said, we'll do. The baker got it almost right. But rather than putting 1 John 4.18, the baker put John 4.18. So during the reception, one of the guests at the reception said, Oh, look how sweet. The couple put a Bible verse. I wonder what that verse says. And they found a Bible. They opened it to John 4, verse 18, and they read these words. You have had five husbands and the man you're living with is not your husband. <laughs> Moral of the story. Getting the gospel almost right is to miss the gospel. The church today is full of people. Our nation today is full of people who get it almost right. It sounds almost right, but they miss it. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I am excited about what we're going to do tonight. I love to do what I do. I hope you know what a privilege it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face, and this is the phrase I want to camp on, and supply what is lacking in your faith. What Paul is saying is, I can't wait to come among you because I've been praying that I can come because something's missing in your faith. You good people of the community church of Thessalonica, I want to supply what's lacking in your faith. Let me pray. Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach like I don't know how to preach tonight. And I pray you'd help us listen like we don't know how to listen. And if you'll give us your spirit to open my mouth and open our ears, Lord, something miraculous can happen. And you can bring out of the chaos and disorder and emptiness of our lives a new creation through the power of your word. In Jesus' name and for the sake of the kingdom, amen. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to 1 Thessalonians. When we were missionaries in France, we had a little dog. Our girls were little, and we had a family dog and all kinds of stories about Buster. Buster was our dog, Buster. We brought him home one time on furlough. 
It's a big deal to get him on the plane, but we couldn't leave him for a year in France. He barked with the French accent, and all the American girl dogs were charmed <clears throat> by Buster. Our girls were probably about ages nine, six, and four. I mean, those magical years. They, I can't tell you how cute our girls were at that age. They were cuter than any girls I've ever seen. We were home living in our, that year of furlough in Wilmore, Kentucky, and one Sunday afternoon, it was just a gorgeous spring day, we took a walk, family walk. And we walked down the wet railroad tracks that go through Wilmore, Kentucky, where those rolling hills of the bluegrass are, and we had Buster with us. It was just sort of an idyllic Sunday afternoon. We were throwing rocks and talking and singing songs and playing follow the leader all the things you do. Well, the, ra the railroad track ran, cut, a, cut a chasm in one of those mountains with sides that probably went up 100 feet on both sides. It was I wasn't being dangerous. There was plenty of shoulder in case a train came. But we got about in the middle of that canyon and said, where's, where's Buster? Buster, where's Buster? Well, Buster had been sniffing his way on the side of the tracks and he had gone up the hill through all these brambles and bushes, and he had gotten, he was 100 feet, 100 feet above us on the track. We were down in the valley, and our girls did what they never should have done. They said, come here, Buster, come here. Buster, being a not very bright dog, started down the cliff. You can't make this story up. He got about 20 feet down the cliff, to a ledge that was about a foot wide and maybe five feet long, and Buster was stuck. He couldn't go up, he couldn't come down, and he was barking. I can still hear the echoes in that canyon. He was barking and just like popcorn on that ledge. Well, we were all traumatized looking at Buster up there because there was a gap. Remember that word gap? between where Buster was and where Buster wanted to be, and he couldn't get there. And, of course, the girls looked at me and said, Daddy, save Buster. <laughs> I saw my whole life pass before my eyes. I dutifully walked back to the end of the canyon, and what had taken Buster maybe 90 seconds to go up that cliff took me probably 30 minutes. Brambles, thorns, it was probably 98 degrees. By the time I got to the top of that cliff, I was bleeding from the thorns, I was sweating, and I was looking down a sheer cliff of 100 feet. Way below was my family, so concerned about Buster. Well, I, what do you do? What do you do? I mean, it, this, is, this is the true story. So I started down the cliff, holding on to roots. You know, rocks are crashing into the chasm. I finally get to the ledge where Buster is, holding on to roots with one hand. This is such a fun story to tell because it's, this is the day I became a hero in my family, by the way. I was holding to a root. I got Buster with one arm, put him up on the next ledge, well, he shot up to the top, and it only took him about a minute and a half. He was going back down, 
and there was this tearful reunion. Oh, Buster, as I watched my family, and here they go, start walking off, and I said, I, I'm still here. Our family loves that story because that's the day Daddy saved Buster. It's a great key family story. Why do I tell that story? Buster was experiencing the gap. Say that word with me, the gap, the gap. He knew where he was, and he knew where he ought to be, but he couldn't get there. And the harder he tried, the worse the situation became. Now, what Buster experienced is what all of us, if we're alert, experience at some point in our Christian discipleship. I'm not talking about pagans. I'm talking about Christians like the Christians at Thessalonica who Paul said, there's a gap. I know where you are and I know where you ought to be. You know where you are. You know where you ought to be. You're to be fruitful. Are you bearing fruit? You're to be victorious. Are you living the victorious life? You're to be joyful. Are you living with a song in your heart and a skip in your step? You're to be strong. Are you there? I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I say, Lord, I know what you want and expect from me but I can't. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm barren. I don't have a song in my heart. How do I get there? Is this as good as it gets? The ledge, the gap, something is missing in your faith. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you're experiencing that moment, and if you're honest, I know I'm tempted to say everybody in the room is. This is a reality. Christians in the church in America today have several ways of dealing with the gap. I'd love to talk theology with you on this. Some people normalize the gap. Oh, the gap's always going to be there. You're never going to be this side of heaven what the Bible says you're supposed to be. Get used to it, but praise God for grace, and when we die... He's going to fix us like we ought to be fixed. Some people deal with the gap by denial. Gap? What gap? I don't see a gap. Some people have a whole theology that explains why the gap is the normal Christian life. I'd love to talk to you about that another time. The interesting thing to me is who Paul is talking to when he says something is missing in your faith. I long to come, verse 10, pray earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to the Christians in Thessalonica. Let me just tell you a little about Thessalonica Community Church, TCC. 
It was a steadfast church. This was a church that experienced persecution, and they didn't deny their faith. Chapter 1, verse 6, you received the word in much affliction. It's a steadfast church. Chapter 1, verse 7, it's a model church. You became an example. I think Thessalonica Community Church gave church conferences on healthy church conferences, how to have a healthy church. They were a model church. It was a missionary church. Verse 8, chapter 1, your faith has gone forth everywhere. This church had mission conferences. This church sent missionaries. And chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, you are waiting for his son to return from heaven. It was a hopeful church. Every morning they got up and looked toward the eastern sky and said, maybe today the skies are going to open and the white horse and the word of God is going to return. I mean, what a church. This is a church I would have traveled one hour every Sunday morning to attend. This was a happening place, a steadfast church, a model church, a missionary church, a hopeful church. In fact, I think this was Paul's favorite church in the New Testament. In chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he says, You are our joy, our crown, our glory, our boasting. What a great church. Think of the best church you've ever known and put it in exponential terms. That's Thessalonica Community Church. This is the people to whom Paul said, not with a wagging finger and a shrill voice, but he said, but something's missing. You see the gap. You know where you are. You know what you ought to be. I want to help you bridge that gap. Now, what is missing in their faith? I'm so glad you asked. That's the right question. Let me ask it personally. What's missing in your faith? If the Holy Spirit tonight, right now as I talk, is making you aware of that ledge where you are and you're just stuck, you're going through the motions, you're on autopilot, you go to church, you get up in the morning, you have your devotions, you tithe. You might even help in the nursery on Sunday morning. Bless your heart. Lord, I'm doing the stuff. Is that all there is? And the Lord Jesus says, I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked. What's missing? Let me read the passage and highlight the word that is missing. I'm reading at the next verse, chapter 3. Beginning at verse 11. Are you with me? You got your Bible? I love the way you bring your Bibles to church. Bravo. A lot of people don't bring their Bibles to church or even their smartphones Bibles to church. And I've learned a lot of people don't need to bring their Bibles to church because the Bible's not used in their church. Well, it's used around here. I know it is. Thank you, Pastor. I know that's true. Verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11. I'm going to emphasize some words as I read, because we're looking for what's lacking 
in their faith because I've got a strong suspicion it's what lacking is lacking in your and my faith as well. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and, here's one clue, and abound in agape, abound in love, self-giving love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in what? Holiness. Oh, it's on the screen behind me. Bravo. I can't. Yeah, it's up high there. I see it now. Blameless in holiness. Say that word holiness with me. Holiness. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, colon, what is God's will? Your, what does your translation say? Mine says sanctification. Some translations say your holiness. It's the same Greek word. This is God's will for you, your sanctification or your holiness. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in what? There's that word again, in holiness. Control your not your heart, not your soul, not your mind, but control your body. I'm going to come back to this. But in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in, there it is again, in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his, what kind of spirit? I think I was 50 years old before I realized the adjective that is the favorite adjective in Scripture to describe the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. It's what kind of Spirit? It's the sanctifying Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. The word holy doesn't just describe who the Spirit is. The word holy describes what the Spirit does, renders things, people, holy. So what's missing in their faith? Holiness. Holiness and all these references I've read. Now, the word holy in Scripture, oh my goodness, what an interesting word. We sang about it tonight. I think we've sung about it every night. Very good. The word holy in its most basic form means to be set apart. That which is holy is that which is God's. 
It's been set apart for God. For example, in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, the pots and pans, I just love this, the pots and pans in the temple were holy. Now I ask myself, you find this, you can read it for yourself. I'm not making this up. I ask myself, Lord, what makes a pot holy? And the Lord just always says, I'm so glad you asked. That's a good question. Is it a pot that's better than all the other pots? No. Is it a pot that is more expensive than the other pots? No. Is it a pot that has no flaws in it? I don't think so. What makes a pot holy? I'll tell you what makes a pot holy. A, a holy pot is a pot that has been taken from common use and put in the temple and said, that's God's pot. And it's only used for what God wants. That's what holiness is. That's a game changer right there. What makes a person holy? Is it because they're better than other people? Lord, deliver us from the arrogance. Is it because they're flawless? They never make a mistake? Not any holy people I've ever known. I've known a few, but they've made a few mistakes, flaws. What makes them holy? I'll tell you, they're completely God's, and you know it. They belong to the Holy One. That's what sanctification is. That's what holiness is. And Paul says, that's what's missing in your faith. You have, your sins have been forgiven, but they've not yet been cleansed. You have the Holy Spirit, but you're not full of the Holy Spirit. You're surrendered to Christ, but you're not fully surrendered to Christ. You know what Jesus wants to do for you, but you haven't yet discovered what Jesus wants to do in you. Oh my goodness. You've got enough faith to get out of Egypt, but you don't yet have enough faith to get into Canaan. You've experienced maturity, but you've not yet experienced purity. You're out of Egypt, but Egypt is not yet completely out of you. That was fun. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians. How are we doing here? You know what it means when I look at my watch? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I do respect your time. And I asked Pastor Sean to see, I said, do I preach too long? He said, you're doing good. I said, well, I don't think people are sleeping when I'm talking. I think they're with me. But I respect your time. I want you to know your presence is a blessing um, to the Lord. I want to look at these verses because I think Paul is explaining to these dear friends, believers in Thessalonica Community Church, what holiness looks like and how it comes. So are you with me? Let's just look at the passage we've read and on a little further. First thing, whatever holiness is, Paul is crystal clear here, holiness 
is about love. Chapter 3, verses 11 and 13, and may the Lord make you increase and abound, what? In love. Whatever holiness is, it's about love. I got to be honest with you. I've spent my whole life around church people and much of my life around holiness people. And I got to be honest, some of the most ornery, cantankerous, pig-headed, difficult, mean-spirited people I've ever known are church people. That's a good place for somebody to say amen, if you'd like to say amen, because we all know it's true. You've, your smiles at me right now says, yeah, I can't believe you're saying that from the pulpit, but I, have, I agree. Whatever holiness is, the aroma of love is what it's all about. If it's not about love, it's not about holiness. I don't know how to say that strong enough. I grew up in a day when holiness was measured not so much by love, but by how long your hair was, or how short your skirt was, or what music you listened to. Remember those days? We don't smoke or drink or chew, and we don't run with those who do. Holiness is about love. And a man or a woman who is filled with the fullness of the sanctifying spirit of God at his funeral or her funeral, what they're going to say is, oh, they memorized a lot of Bible verses. No, they're going to say they knew how to love. They knew how to love. I got to tell you a story. It's one of my This story changed my life. It's Robert Coleman. Dr. Robert Coleman, oh my goodness, he's still with us. He's 90-something. The fire burns in him. He wrote the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, if you know it. I had him for Theology of Evangelism when he told this story. And I can't tell it like he does, but he tells the story of, it was a hot Kentucky afternoon. He was working in the garden years ago. Humidity was high, and he was just dripping with sweat. His son was in the house, looked out the window, must have been four years old, saw Daddy working on a hot day, and had an idea. His son went to the kitchen, found the first glass he could find. It was a dirty glass on the counter. Put his stubby little dirty fingers over the rim of the glass, held it like this, went to the faucet, turned on the warm water, Filled up that glass with warm water, little rivulets of dirt running down into the dirty glass. Went running out into the backyard, said, Daddy, Daddy, I brought you some water. And Dr. Coleman said, now what was I supposed to do? He said, I could have said, stupid kid, go back and do it right. And then he said, what 
kind of a father would I be? He said, I looked in those eyes and I knew he was loving me with all his four-year-old heart. Imperfect performance, to be sure. But love was perfect. He said, I took that glass. I drank every drop of it. He said, I picked up my son and hugged him. And I said, thank you for loving your daddy with all your perfect four-year-old heart. That story changed my theology. Holiness is not about performance. It's not about a perfection of performance. It is about a perfection of love. When I hear that, I have two reactions. My first reaction is relief. It's like, you mean it's not about doing the stuff? <laughs> you mean it's not about how many minutes I'm having every morning in devotion or tithing or going to Wednesday night prayer meeting? <laughs> you mean it's not about the stuff? No, Stan, it never was about the stuff. You mean it's just about loving you with all my heart? And then I have my second reaction, which is sheer terror. Loving you with all my heart. Lord, do you know how tortured and twisted and egocentric and arrogant my heart is? And the Lord just always looks at me with a twinkle in his eye and says, I've been wanting to talk to you about that for a long time. I know all about your heart, Stan. And I'd like to deal with it. I'd like to do some heart surgery on that divided impurity within. I love the way you're listening. There were, I don't know how many times this has happened in our marriage. If you don't understand the theology of that, let me tell you a marriage illustration. Probably 10 times in our marriage, this just is a recurring theme, maybe more. I'll come in the house in the evening, five, six o'clock at night, and Katie greets me with the four words that strike terror in every husband's heart. <laughs> we need to talk. And I know what's coming. I've been there so many times. I know what's coming. So I'll say, okay. And usually what she means when she says we need to talk is she means you need to listen. <laughs> Stan, I feel like we're ships passing in the night. You've got your life. I've got my life. I thought we were lovers. I thought we were a marriage. I don't even feel connected to you. You're just going your way, I'm mine, what, what's going on? And on a really good moment, sometimes I'll say something brilliant like, well, I could take the trash out more often. <laughs> Does your spouse ever roll their eyes at you? And Katie will just say, you don't get it. And I'll say, get what? 
She says, I don't want you to take the trash out. And I'll say, you said you did, and you told me I didn't do it enough. I can quote you. She said, but you weren't paying attention. To what? She said, I don't want the trash. I want you. Are you all in? Do I have your heart? You know that conversation like I do. We understand it in marriage. Marriage doesn't work without that. And it doesn't work with Jesus without that. He wants all your love. That's the great commandment. Love the Lord, what? With most of your heart? <laughs> love the Lord with all your heart. So holiness is about love. Secondly, holiness, let me just read it to you. Chapter 4, verse 1, we read it. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to, some translations say live, but that's, frankly, I'm not a scholar, but it's not a good translation. The Greek word is walk. Holiness is a walk. It's a lifestyle. It's a daily walking the walk. And in chapter 4, verse 12, he says it again, that you may walk properly. Holiness is a walk. Now, I say that because somewhere growing up, I got the idea holiness was a zap. <laughs> You're not laughing as much as I am at this. But I really thought this. I don't know if that's what the preacher said or if it's just what I heard. But I got the idea I'm supposed to go to an altar and have an experience and receive a zap. And when I stand up, I'm a new person. Now, that's not completely false. That's why it's so important. I believe in altars. I believe in experience. I've had a few that were life-changing. I hope you have. But let me just tell you, the holiness Paul is talking about here, he's not telling the Thessalonians to get zapped. He's telling them to walk the walk. You see, I grew up hearing people say, did you get it? Did you get it? And I want to say, what do you mean it? It? No, it's did you meet him? It's not an it, it's a him. Holiness is a walk. Enoch, get your Strong's Concordance and look up the word walk and just work on it for a month. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Jesus called his disciples by saying, follow me. In other words, let's walk. Let's walk. Paul's letters are full of the command to walk in love, walk in the light, walk worthy, walk in the spirit, walk circumspectly. Walk. It's not just an experience. Experience is a funny thing. Don't tell anybody, but I don't know if they still have Hallmark card commercials on TV but I cry during Hallmark card commercials. They create an experience. It always embarrasses me with the 
family full of girls. I don't want them to see daddy crying. Maybe the most strange emotional experience I had was as a teenager when I saw Hank Aaron hit a home run and I cried. <laughs> Every man in the room understands this. Hank Aaron hit a home But where the emotions came from, I have no idea. Emotions can fool you. Paul says, I'm not asking you to look for an emotion. I'm asking you to do the walk. I've been around church people and holiness people. The most, the woman in, wow, I'm going to say something scary here. The woman in New York church who was the quickest to say that she was holy in those terms and that she did not sin. I kid you not. She used those words. She was the woman who sued the church in a lawsuit just before I got there. What's wrong with this picture? One of the preachers that I, that preached the most incredible sermons on the deeper life was a serial pedophile. Some of you know these stories. An associate pastor who was a womanizer. You know these stories. I know these stories. Paul says, don't be fooled. Holiness is about love. Holiness is about a walk, not a zap. Thirdly, we're almost done. How are we doing? Holiness, if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, or if Paul hasn't, he's about to. Holiness is about getting your sexuality surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's like, where did that come from? It comes from the Bible. Listen to what Paul says. This is chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God. That's got my attention. How many people go through life and say, well, if I could only know what God's will was. Well, here you go. Here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification, comma. In other words, what I mean is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And if you're saying, well, what does sexual immorality have to do with holiness? I want to say, I'm so glad you asked. In a day where our culture, I just grieve for the culture we're leaving our grandchildren. Has there ever been a culture more confused, particularly about human sexuality? What it means to be a little boy and a little girl. What it means to have a mommy and a daddy what it means to be male and female. Have we ever been more confused? And Paul says, if we haven't surrendered our sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we will not understand the first steps of what holiness is all about. Do you hear how quiet it is in the room? This is real. The church today is full of a heresy that was very prevalent 
in the first two and three centuries, even in the New Testament, called Gnosticism. I want you to remember that word, G-N-O-S, Gnosticism. It's a heresy. And let me just tell you, it's in the church today. Gnosticism basically says this. What's important in your spirituality is your spirit, your heart, your soul, your mind, but not your body. What you do with your body doesn't matter. What's important is the spirit. I would love to pull our chairs in a circle and talk about Gnosticism. Let me just remind you of how Paul talks. When Paul wrote Romans, let me tell me if I'm quoting this verse right. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your spirits to God as a living sacrifice. Your pastor is shaking his head, no. That's not what it says. I beseech you that you present your souls as a living sacrifice, your minds as a living sacrifice. No. What did Paul say? This is revolutionary. This will cause a reformation if we get this right. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body, your body. Tim Tennant, the president of Asbury Seminary, has just written a book on the body, the theology of the body. We think we can love Jesus with our hearts and our spirits and give him our minds and then do with our bodies what we jolly well please. That is a heresy, a damnable heresy from the pit of hell. I went home last night and I said, I really beat up on those poor people <laughs> last night. I hope you don't feel I'm beating up on you. I can't tell you how important this is. But it, if we don't get sexuality under control in our own lives, in our own families, in our church, in our culture, we'll lose the war. Samson the strongest man in the world, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, David, the godliest man in the world, had moral failures in the realm of sexuality. If it can happen to them, it can happen to you. How do you fight the fire of lust? Thomas Chalmers was a Scottish Presbyterian in the 19th century, and he preached a very famous sermon. You can still Google it and find it, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a great title for a sermon. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In other words, you fight fire with fire. The fire of lust can only be fought when you find another fire that burns hotter and brighter and more passionately than lust. And let me tell you, there's only one, and it's the fire of Pentecost. Lust is a passion that will control you unless you can find 
another passion that burns hotter. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was a college student, I was cutting edge technology because, and really on the just cutting edge of culture, because in my room I had my own hot pot. <laughs> this was big in those days. And I could make instant coffee, and I loved instant coffee. I would make my little coffee, and people would say, oh, Stan, you've got a hot pot in your room. I said, yeah, I'm just, I'm like that. The day came, and I loved instant coffee. But the day came when I discovered something called Starbucks. And I never had a cup of instant coffee since. The expulsive power of a new affection. You got it? The power of lust, the power of what's happening in our culture with sexuality will only be dealt with when the people of God rediscover the power and the passion of holiness and Pentecost. So, how in the world can I be holy? I'm so glad you asked. Chapter 5, verse 23. We're almost done. We're skipping a few good parts in Thessalonians, but chapter 5, verse 23. Paul says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, that can be translated, make you holy. It's the same translation. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, your whole soul, your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Who will do it? He will do it. There's a heresy in the church, and it goes like this. We're justified by grace, but we're sanctified by works. It's a heresy, and it only produces Pharisees. It only produces Pharisees, and the gospel becomes try harder. You're not living the holy life? Well, it's because you're not having long enough devotions. It's because you haven't memorized scripture. It's because you don't go to church enough. It's because you haven't been on a missions trip. You're probably not even tithing. You hear the Try harder, try harder, try harder. We're sanctified by what we do, by trying harder. That's a damnable lie. Faithful is he who calls you. You're saved by grace. You're sanctified by grace. It's a gift. 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 Can I tell you one more story? It's from my favorite theology book, The Chronicles of Narnia. That's true. You may think The Chronicles of Narnia are just for children. Don't be fooled. 
In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, we meet a rascal called Clarence Eustace Scrub. And the author of Narnia says he deserved his name, <laughs> Eustace, just a, he was a rascal. He became greedy on one of his voyages and turned into a dragon. Don't ask me how that happened, just be a child and accept the story. Eustace had been dragonized and he couldn't get free from his dragon nature. He was caught. And let me just read you what happened. I love this. This is, I think, my favorite thing C.S. Lewis ever wrote. In his dragon nature, Eustace, for the first time, met the lion, Aslan. And the lion invited him to follow him to a water, a pond of water that was clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in the water, the, e the pain would begin to ease. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said words or not, but that's what I heard. I was going to say that I couldn't undress because I don't have clothes on when I suddenly realized that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes can cast off their skins. Of course, I thought that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper. Instead of just scales coming off here and there, my skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I stepped out of the skin and I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty and it was a lovely feeling, so I went down to the water to bathe. But I was, uh, and as I was putting my foot into the water, I looked and saw that my foot was still all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as before, and I thought, it only means I have another suit of skin on underneath the outer one. So I started scratching again, and I peeled the second suit off beautifully, and out I stepped, and I left that skin lying beside the other skin. Well, I went down to the water to bathe, and the same thing happened again. And I thought, oh dear, how many layers are there? Oh, that's good. How many layers of dragon are there? for I was longing to be free. I scratched away the third time and I got off the third skin, but like the other two, I stepped out of it and as I, soon as I looked at my reflection in the water, I saw it was no good. Then the lion said, Aslan, you'll have to let me undress you. I was terrified of his claws. I can tell you that, but I was so desperate now, I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. Magnificent. I lay down, I stopped trying, and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep 
I thought it was going right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the sheer pleasure of feeling the stuff come off. You know, if you've ever picked the skin off a scab, it hurts like Billy-O, but it's so fun to peel the scab off. I love C.S. Lewis. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done on myself the other times, only when I did it, it didn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and a lot smaller than I used to be. I love that line. A lot smaller than I used to be. Then the lion caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much because I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It stung like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain was gone, and I had turned into a boy again. The last paragraph of that chapter, the narrator says this, It would be nice and nearly true to say, quote, From that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. There were relapses. There were some days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice because the cure had begun. That is a marvelous description of entire sanctification. You cannot do it yourself. You come to the point where you say, Lord, the gap I can't cross. I'm going to lay down and let you do it. It's the easiest thing you'll ever do. It's the most terrifying thing you'll ever do. Lord, tonight, your spirit has been working among us, making us aware of the gap. You want to complete what is lacking in our faith. Lord, you've shown us tonight that it's not about perfect performance. It's about perfect love. And Lord, nothing is more reassuring than that, and nothing is more terrifying than loving you with all our heart. Lord, you've shown us tonight that we can't make ourselves holy. Faithful is he who calls you. He will do it. As we sing this closing song, if you want God to complete what is lacking in your faith, the altar tonight is open to just say, Lord, I want to go to another level. I want to get off this stupid ledge where I'm stuck. I want you to take me to a place that I haven't yet been, and I want you to do it. It's grace, grace, 
marvelous grace. Would you have your way in each of our hearts? In these closing moments, as we stand and sing, and if you want to slip out and come to the altar, if you want to just pray right where you are, if God is speaking, just respond to what he's saying to you.